Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, beautiful souls, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible couples counselor, author, and professor, Dr. Mary Jifra. Hello, Mary. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we'll be talking about the five secrets to a great relationship. And for those that don't know, Dr. Mary Jifra has been counseling couples and families for over 40 years. She is a tenured professor at New York University, where she received her PhD and holds an honorary doctorate of humane letters from the College of Mount St. Vincent. Dr. Jifra is widely published with her research on couples and has served on the boards of professional journals, hospitals, and community health agencies. Dr. Jifra developed biological couples therapy and presented it at the U.S. Association for Body Psychotherapy and international conferences in the Netherlands and France. She is the author of Two by Two on the Arc, Five Secrets to a Great Relationship, which is the topic for today's show. How are you today, Mary? I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too. You have such a wealth of experience and decades of wisdom. And you've written many things before for the professional world. And now you have something for everyone, two by two. And it's not just, you know, glib advice, but based on the decades of working directly with couples and your own research. And I'd love to hear more about the research that you've done on couples, what you were looking for, what you found, and also your methodology. Like, how'd you go about researching this dynamic of relationships? Well, if you're interested in the research, I'll start out with my first research. My first research was I had worked with in labor and delivery, and I saw so much going on with parents and with mothers and children. So the first research I, I did was to see that people who seemed to do the best were defined in their own right. They were people in their own right. But some people are fused with other people, like kids are fused with mom, and it's what mom thinks, what mom says, rather than them. So the first research I said I did was called differentiation of self. And, and the relationship between a mother's differentiation of self and the accuracy of her perception of her child's behavior. So what I said was that the more defined the more mother is as a person, the more she will give the child space to be a person in his or her own right, and she'll see the person as he really or she really is rather than as she wants him to be or hopes he won't be. The more you're defined, the less you get your definition from other people. You know, in this case, if, if I'm not a person, then I'm a mother, and then that means the child has to define me, rather than I'm um, a person who happens to be a mother and who happens to be a wife. It's very different from I am a wife, I am a mother. I, you know what I mean? It's I'm a person who is also in this particular role. 
So that was my first one. It was differentiation of self. And what I did was I studied the mothers. I tested them with scales to measure differentiation of self. And I had other people test the children. And what I did was I got a what's called a gazelle developmental scale. It shows like toddlers, what behaviors do toddlers do? It's like an IQ for kids, for little ones. It's called a developmental quotient. And so I gave the mothers the scale, but with no ages and asked them if they thought their child could do that. And then I had objective testers test the children to see what their accurate score was. And so what I theorized was that the more defined a mother would be, the more she would divine, see more accurately she would see her child, whether it's over or under functioning or accurate. So, and it turned out that it was significant at 0.003 level, which is really significant. The more defined a mother was in her own self, the more she could, more accurately she could perceive her child rather than underestimating him or overestimating him. So it, my, that's always been my, the more you're a person, the freer you are to let other people be who they are and the, the more accurately you see them. So that's so fascinating. What I'm really hearing from you is I need a healthy level of differentiation in order for my child to have a healthy level of differentiation. And I'm curious what that looks like. So when you do have this scale that kind of measures how healthy is my differentiation of self, how am I my own person in my own right? What are some examples of what that looks like? We have cognitive intellectuals, so your thoughts, are they your thinking? Are they clear thoughts? We also have emotions. It's different parts of the brain. Thoughts come from the cerebral cortex. Emotions come from the limbic system in the brain. Thoughts obey the laws of logic. Emotions do not. They're like the weather. They come and go. Today, it's a tornado. Tomorrow, it's, it's sunshine. The next day, it's snow. Relationship, emotions are the same thing. I'm happy. I'm sad. I, I love you. I can't stand you. You know what I mean? It's all the same. So, <laughs> and, and so it's, and the brainstem is about survival. So it's kind of, you know, we've all had trauma. It's not just the automobile accidents, but just growing up, just mini tra- traumas with a small T. And so if someone says something in the present or has a certain look, certain expression, or you see some, it takes you back to a trauma when you were a kid. Now, it's not the same person. It's not the same situation, but you're no longer in 2023. You're back there and back there 10, 15, 20, 40 years ago. Do you know what I mean? Responding to a parent, a teacher, or somebody, some bully rather than your partner or the person. So that's it. So in, in, in it's really, really important to separate out Okay, so all of a sudden I feel angry. Okay, but that's my anger. You didn't make me angry. You might have done something that triggered something in me that brought up anger, but you didn't make me angry. I came angry with your behavior or lack of behavior, but it's my anger and you didn't cause it. So it's really important to own that. And what I feel is what I feel. It doesn't mean you feel that. It has nothing to do with love if you feel it and I don't. It has to do with reality. We are separate people. So that's why you have to leave space for love. You have to say, okay, I'm me and you're you. And I mean, you know, we really fully in love is like fusion. You become one, two become one. And that's the kind of, but if two become one and they go through relationships like that all the time, you're not going to have people growing or evolving. You're going to have pulling in different directions if you make, or grabbing onto each other. So you want to move a little intimacy, come in and then come out and differentiate self. How am I like this person? How am I different? that sort of thing. So it starts with parents and kids that the baby and the mother are fused. They're one literally for nine months. And then for, for the first you know several months of their lives, it's two when the toddler says no, that they're separating. 
because yes is together and no is separate. So the toddler says, do you want ice cream? No. Do you want a plate? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's not about the activity. It's about I'm different from you. I want to be different from you. Adolescents do the same thing, but on a more sophisticated level. With an adolescent, it's more differentiation from the culture and the values and that kind of thing to be their own person. It's just a different level of the same issue. So if you're a Republican, they're a Democrat, or if you're a Democrat, they're a Republican. You're that kind of thing. It's so interesting to hear you say that we need a certain level of space in our relationships. We need a certain level of difference when a lot of people are focused on that oneness and on that becoming one. And it's funny because before we started recording, I warned you there might be technical difficulties. We already had some technical difficulties. And you were like, this is exactly what a relationship is like. (laughs) 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 So I'm curious more about those myths of marriage, how we're told it's supposed to be like the happily ever after, the oneness is as the ultimate goal. What are some of the greatest misconceptions people do have about their relationships? Well, it's that people have to be a certain way. You know, the person you marry, you just know a little bit about them. They don't know a whole lot about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Ideally, you, if, if you're a living, growing person, you're learning more about yourself every day, how you respond, how you... So how could another person know you? You're not, you're not cooked yet. You're becoming. <laughs> <laughs> you're evolving. You're not cooked. You're not finished. Some people think they are, but they get pretty stale that way. You know, and that's why one of the biggest complaints in marriage is boredom. And boredom is because people aren't growing. It's no other reason. Because it's, and it's not so much about the other person. I mean, if somebody is abusive or something like that, you know, that's a different issue. I'm not talking about that. You know, if somebody has physical violence, that kind of thing, I'm really not talking about that. I'm talking about more, you know, garden variety. So the idea is you're a separate person from them. They don't know what you think. They don't know what you need. They don't know what you feel unless you tell them. And sometimes they may pick it up from past experiences, but when they see a certain look in your eye and they think you're angry, it may be because when their father had that look in his eye, he was angry. So you need to check it out. You can't just say you're angry. You say, what's going on? Or you might think, I feel that you're something. And the other person says, no, I'm not. And it may be that they're really not, or it may be they're just in denial. And if they're denial, I wouldn't keep at it. I would allow some space that they, that's their protection for the minute. You know, you do that. You don't have a steady diet of it. But if somebody kind of is distancing and doesn't want to talk or you've got to leave them space, it's just wise. You're two separate people. So you're angry. Okay. So tell me about it. Okay. So I'll listen and I don't take it personally. I may take it personally, but that's my problem that I have to work out. I don't dump that back on you. So we're responsible for our own emotions, our own thoughts, our own sensations. We can't blame other people for them. But a lot of people do. They, say, you know, if you look at somebody, well, now if I do all the right things, then you know I should feel X, Y, Z. Well, good trick if you can do it. I know it's really obvious, but it's absolutely true that people think if they fall in love, the partner just is going to know them. That they'll just make them, I don't know, cookies when they're sick because that's what they love. Your <laughs> <laughs> mother did, but their mother didn't do that. She didn't even know how to bake. <laughs> But you're absolutely right. But, you know, the the movies and the the novels all say, if you find the right person, that's the solution. It's the right person. But the right person might be the right person today. But as you evolve and change, they may not be the right person anymore. So what do you do? Dump them and get a new one? (laughs) Every time you go into a change? Some people try that. 
Yeah, I know. It's, it's <laughs> costly on many levels. <laughs> so it's, it's your basic assumption that I'm a separate person and you're a separate person and we love each other. And that's a fusion, a connection. It feels great and enjoy it. But you have to be able to let it go and to feel the, the, the aloneness, the loneliness, the abandonment that you may or may not have found, felt when you were a kid, depending on your own history. And you can talk about it, but you can have to process it. They're not going to take it away forever. You know, they may be more there for you and more available than, than your parents were. And so that sort of fills a need, but they're not going to be there all the time. They can't. So it's interesting because one thing I'm hearing from you is that one of the biggest complaints in marriages is boredom. And a huge reason because of that is there's no growth. But also that there's times in a relationship where we need to let our partner be who they are and we need to give them space. So I am curious, how do we go about bringing that growth into relationship? Particularly, for example, if I want to bring up an issue with my partner and they don't want to talk about it, for example. Like, hey, I want to grow this aspect of a relationship. And they're like, no, it's fine. Or I, I can't talk about this right now. Perfect. So then just ask me, be a guy and ask me, or be a woman and ask me, do you don't have to be, you know, just ask, I want to talk about something, this and that. Okay. I mean, this may be the truth. I'd love to, but I got to put the kids to bed now. How about we'll talk later on? Or sweetheart, I'd love to do that, but I have I have work that I have to do. How about tomorrow morning, this afternoon, later on? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of happy to do it, but I can't do it right now. Or sure, let's sit down and talk. The situation varies. Sometimes you can do it and sometimes you can't. And sometimes you're exhausted and say, you know, I'd like to. I'm here for you. Let me give you a hug, but I'm exhausted. Can we do it tomorrow? Because I don't think I'm going to be there for you in the way you need me to be. I mean, just reality is what reality is. If you're not up for it, you're not, I don't mean in an avoidance kind of way. I mean, but even if you're not up for it in an avoidance kind of way, you can say, you know what, that doesn't feel good, but I'll think about it. How about we'll talk about it tomorrow? You sort of have people's space to be who they are, to feel what they feel, to respond the way they respond without being intrusive or cutting you off. The problem is when someone just cuts the other person off and ignores them or say, no, I'm not going to discuss it. I won't go. Or the other one then gets angry and starts invading space. No. That's not the way to do it. And you also need space inside yourself to separate the mishmash that's going on in there, to separate what you think, what you feel, what you sense, like what's going on inside you. That you don't want to blame on them, but it's, it's inside you. It's not inside them. Yeah, I'm really hearing from you this emphasis on this U-turn, this internal shift of both recognizing what it is that we're experiencing, but also taking responsibility for it. And I'm wondering how that ties into your approach on biological couples therapy. And if you could tell our listeners how that differs a little bit from more traditional or regular couples therapy. Well, cognitive behavioral therapy talks about cognitions and your thoughts. And I studied that as well. And traditional psychoanalytic psychodynamic is more, it's changing, but more in terms of your emotions. Psychoanalytic might touch into the bio. It depends though. But I came from somatic psychotherapy, and it brings in the whole idea of all the work on neuropsychology and neurobiology. Everything that's happening is happening in this body, (laughs) and this body is a biological system, and emotions are just an expression from one small part of that system. They come through the body, but if you just get the finished product and you don't know where they're from, it's not grounded. It's kind of like just 
you feel it and you dump it all over the environment. That's what happens with strong emotions, like people get angry or it's just it, the energy comes through your body. You feel it and you dump it on somebody else. Like it's that it's their fault. What you need to do is to, to ground yourself, put your feet on the floor, ground your feet, you know, ground, put your sit on the chair and feel your butt on the chair, your back against the chair and just feel your own body and get in your own skin. And that's home. And then if you're back in the past, what happened with your mother, father last week, you got to get into this moment, this present. So you might want to scan the room, let your eyes rest on something. And you can just see it, what that does. It takes you right into your body. Just gently, you don't push them around. You let the eyes just scan the room the way they want to and just rest on something. Take a breath. You get more into your own body. Come back home again. So better to have your disagreements from your house and your house rather than out in the street where there are no boundaries. boundaries. I'm very curious your approach. If somebody's having a lot of difficulty taking responsibility for their own feelings because what they're feeling is clearly a result of their partner's behavior. Because there's the little things like this place is such a mess because my partner didn't clean it up. So I'm angry as a result. But then there's potentially larger things like I feel insulted by what they said. And it's actually cruel. Like maybe they said something like that was insulting, not just taken a different way. Or even the more extreme examples like cheating or betrayal. I think people feel very justified in their emotional experience. Right. Well, I think you raise three beautiful examples. In other words, one, you dump it all over the other person and blame them. Rather than saying, you know, when the place is a mess, I walk in and it just feels, I feel horrible. I, I just, then I, I feel an angry. You don't get angry at them. You tell them how you feel. And I feel angry and, you know, you might've been busy, but I'm just telling you how I feel. So what can we do to work around this? You know, maybe I could help or, you know, let's talk about it. What are your thoughts about it, about the, the mess, you know, and the other part might say, well, I had a terrible day today. I was really busy. If they have kids, the kids were acting up. And, you know, okay, life is like that. (laughs) So, you know, if the other one still stays, you know, that's sort of not realistic. They need to look at themselves. So that's that's one way of handling it. You know, um, now what were the the other ones? So one was that. Well, the more extreme examples of like an insult, feeling insulted, for example. Insulted because they said the house was a mess or insulted because the house is a mess? Or no, either. no, no. A, a totally different situation. Like, let's just say my partner is like, you know, you're, con- you're so inconsiderate or something like that. No, that's not okay. To say you're inconsiderate is not okay. To say you're this, you're that, you're the other thing is not okay. That's judgmental and critical and it's not okay. So if I'm feeling an emotional reaction because my partner said something that's not okay, how do I still take responsibility for that? I think when you say, you know, when you talk to me like that, I, it doesn't feel good or it hurts my feelings or I want to back off or I just want to walk out of the room because I feel hurt when you talk to me like that. I mean, it's okay to tell me that you're, what your feelings are, what you'd like and how you're disappointed. But when you start attacking me like that, it doesn't feel good. And you're calling me names. It doesn't feel good. So can we work on that and do it differently? What I'm almost saying is like a really strong boundary almost results from being in touch with our emotions and realizing what we need in that moment. Differentiation of self. That's what it's all about. The more you can know what's going on in your own body, what your sensations are, your thoughts are, your emotions, 
the more differentiated they are, you are, the more of a person you are, the more you can know this is me or this is I, and that's the other person. And they have different thoughts and feelings and mine aren't wrong or right. They're just different. I'm not going to be ashamed of them. These are my feelings. I own them. Maybe I'll look at them and then express them and check, but this is the way it is right now. It's like to be loving to yourself. It's kind of like when a little kid is angry or feels so, I don't love you. I don't like you. I, oh, well, okay. So at that minute, they don't like you and they don't love you and they are angry. So give them space. Don't judge them or punish them or say, oh, do you know what I mean? And some parents do that. They punish them if they say that. It's not fair. The goal of a parent is to teach kids how to cope with feelings, not to program them into, you can't feel this and you can feel that. Absolutely. Whether you think they're right or wrong, I still feel them just for the record. If I act out on them, it's different. Like I might want to have an affair. That's very different from having an affair. But if if I want to have an affair, then there must be something in our relationship that I'm avoiding or running away from rather than confronting. So I feel like this is a really lovely segue into the five secrets that we can get into sure. from your book, Two by Two on the Ark. And before we get into them, I'm just curious about this word secrets. I'm wondering how secret they are. Meaning like, do you feel like you've been really teaching this to your couples and clients for decades now, and now we need to get out into the world? Or is there another reason we don't know how to operate in relationships? No, I'm thinking of like the secret of success. You know, that was a big book, big, I don't mean secret and hidden, you know, secrets are usually a real problem for relationships. Do you know what I mean? But there are two definitions of secrets. You know, one is like hidden and the other one is aha. So mine's the aha. Like the answer, <laughs> like the, the secret to life. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But the secret is, you know, there's a, a family secret or a secret that we don't want anyone to know about. Your dad's a, an alcoholic. He gets drunk every night, but that's our family secret. Now, the first one, I feel like we've already mentioned a little bit to leave space for love. So important. I think it's probably the most important one of all because love is a coming together, which is beautiful and wonderful, but you, you need to, and, and we all, it's our dream to find the right person to, oh, you know, it takes you back to that wonderful, but then people want to hold on to that. And that's when you get into problems, because if we're holding on to that, we can't grow and change. It's kind of like the toddler is like this, and then he goes, no, and goes the other way, you know, and defines himself. Well, on a more sophisticated level, we do the same thing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I'm just getting the imagery of like a plant, for example. You want, it'll grow on its own almost if you give it the space, the light, the water, the soil. Beautiful example. I've never used it, but it's because you get the pots, the plants and their root, they're just, the roots are just overtaking the, the pot and they need space and dirt and they just blossom. So I love that analogy. I haven't used it. Thank you. <laughs> Happy it. to help. <laughs> but you, you have the idea. It's that you just need space to grow and to breathe and to expand and to change. But don't ever change. I love you just the way you are. It's like, take the plant and put it in the in the pot and the roots are getting suffocated in there, not getting oxygen. So isn't that the, the love songs really are say, Oh, if it's the right one, you'll live happily ever after it. Don't ever change. Always be, but it's not real. I mean, it, it's not compatible with growth or life and life is, is movement, right? I mean, life is movement. So the opposite of movement is no change, no movement. So let's say I'm listening to this podcast. I'm like, I should leave space for love. How can I go about doing that? 
Okay, that's a great one. The first thing you do is whatever you're focused on, the other person usually, is to just take a breath and put a little bit of distance between you. So you're in the middle of a big fight or something. Say, you know what? Let's take five, 10, 15, no more than 20 minutes and then come back and address this. I, I, I just need to get some space. Take a breath, go to the bathroom, get a cup of tea or coffee, have a glass, probably not alcohol because that puts you into a different space and, and then come back. Or, you know, but if you say I need a day or two days, that's not fair. Just need up to 20 minutes to kind of get back into your own skin, to feel your feet on the floor, to breathe, to walk around, to look outside, to scan the room, to get away from the, this and get back to this. And then when I'm back in this, okay, I can see you, you know, it's like I, we've gotten enmeshed in each other. So I'm going to take the strings out, my strings that I have in you and your strings that you have in me, yours go back to you, mine go back to me. And I kind of put a boundary around, I don't mean a withdrawal, but a boundary. You can, that, this is me and that's you. Those are your feelings. These are mine. Love your emphasis on the whole body. Everything works together. The sensations, the emotions, the cognitive functioning. Oh, and the physical sensations is the most neglected. Cognitive therapy is intellectual, cognitive, and then much psychoanalytic and much psychodynamic is all emotional, emotional, emotional. Well, you can get that, you get OD on that. Do you know? <laughs> 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 you not need to ground it. So you need to be your body and your sensations. The language of the body is sensation. This is what I'm sensing. The emotions is the limbic system. The language is emotion. And these are reason, the language, I mean, the cognition, the, the, the language is reason. So I will allow space and I'll put my emotions in it, my sensations in it. And I'll use my reason to make sense of it all and to decide what, what my next steps are. I love that. I do talk a lot about, because I teach yoga, and I do talk a lot about oh, oh, how much we need to yeah, come back into our bodies. So I might use that imagery that we've overdosed on conceptual yes. <laughs> like ruminative We have in therapy, especially. I mean, you see people in therapy say, oh, my God. Like, people say, I'm in a rage. Okay, where do you feel that in your body? And then they, it grounds it. It's not spitting it all over the room. It's grounding it in their body. So I'm constantly trying to ground it in their body. You know, where do you feel that in your body? And then and when you say that, then what happens? And then what happens? And track it in their body. It's just, it, and trauma, you know, is not in the event. Trauma's in your body. People think trauma's in the event. It's not. It's in your body. Two of us could have the same experience. One has trauma, the other has. I'll give you a prime example. I had a woman I had been working with, and she had an alcoholic father and a depressed mother who was in bed all the time. She was the oldest with two younger siblings. We did a lot of work, and she called me one day. I had worked with her husband, too. She called me one day. She had been on 684 on the highway, and she had her five-year-old in the front seat and a little one in the back, and she was making a turn. A woman backed and hit into her, you know? And she looked, and she saw a sneaker. Everybody was fine. She saw a sneaker fly out of the, the you know, trunk. But she panicked. So they pulled over and, you know, she called me the next day and she was just in a, in a real PTSD, upset state. But I sat and I asked her about the kids. Well, the kid, the five-year-old said to her that night when he was going to sleep, Grandma, this was the best day of my life because nobody was hurt. The police came, the ambulance came, the fire truck came, all his toys came to life. <laughs> it was the best day of his life. And she's in PTSD. Exact same event, two different outcomes. Difference is he had a you know, fairly good childhood. And so this was exciting. He didn't have any trauma, whereas she had a, a lifetime of trauma. 
that got triggered because it was in her body. So it wasn't the event. It was her body, what it meant to her in her own body, what was still remaining in her own body, trauma in her body. Yeah, it really ties back to what you're saying about trauma before. And that's one thing I've learned about it. I remember reading that basically trauma has no timeline. Like it's not something that has happened before. It's in our bodies and our bodies in this moment, this present moment. Absolutely. It doesn't matter when it happened. If it comes up, it's you're right back there again. You may be a couple having a fight, but one of those partners is back home with their mother or father fighting with them and mistreating them or in a previous relationship, you know, in a, a couple's relationship, like if you're divorced or those other relationships, if you don't resolve the issues from them, they're going to come into the new relationship. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and you overreact to the new partner based on XYZ with the old partner. So secret number two is operate your brains to love. What does that look like? What does that mean? We have triune brain, it's called. The cerebral cortex is the smart human brain, the one that you use in school that we reason with. And as I say, the language is reason. So when you say, you know, you identify a behavior, so that's, it obeys the laws of logic, it's perfectly contained. The emotions are from the limbic system of the brain, which is the middle part of the brain. They do not obey the laws of logic. They're more biologically, they come up through the body and the spit out, whether it's anger or sadness or anxiety or fear comes from your body out with often without any scream. So they don't obey the laws of logic. And many people try to reason with emotions. You can't reason with anger. You can't reason with anxiety. You can't reason with fear or sadness. Well, fear, maybe there's a little bit of intellect involved in it. So what you need to do is just to let space for a person to be angry. You can support them, give them a hug or say, I'm here for you or something like that. But you can't process it for them. It's their anger, their sadness, their, their whatever it is, whatever the emotion is. So you just allow space. You sit with a person, I'm angry, I'm sad. Just be curious, be present, and just hold a space for them to say it. It's kind of when, when you're a child and any of these emotions first come up, your parents' response to them influences you for a lifetime. I don't mean a one-shot deal, I mean a steady. So if you get angry and your parents get angry or your parents shut down, you're going to take that in and it's going to keep happening and then you're going to stop getting angry. And you're more than likely going to marry someone or get involved in a relation with someone who shuts down whenever anger happens. It's just the way it works. So then you're with them and you get angry and they shut down and you react not just for 2023, but for 2005, 2010. You know what I'm saying? It's not just the present. Your reaction is about the past. So that's not their issue. That's your issue. So just to clarify, one partner's angry, the other one shuts down in response. Who needs to fix? Well, the angry person can say, what just happened? You know, I was just sharing what's going on with you and you just shut right down. So like, what was that about? And ideally they'll say, well, you know, I don't know. Or they may say, I don't want to talk about it. Right. And so you need to give them space. There's another underlying concept that I want to bring up. In relationships, people tend to be pursuers or distancers. Like one may pursue emotionally and another one may distance emotionally. And the other one may pursue sexually and distance emotion. And You know what I mean? So you might have a sexual pursuer married to an emotional pursuer. And so when he pursues sexually, she distances 
when she pursues emotionally, he distances or he, he, it doesn't matter who or what, but you know what I'm saying. So that's what most relation, most people are pursuers and distances and they're pursuers and distances tend to get together because two pursuers could have a great affair, but it'd be too much for a long-term relationship. And you can be a pursuer and a distancer, as I say, around different issues. You can pursue intellectually, you can pursue emotionally, you can pursue sexually. You can distance intellectually, you can distance emotionally, you can distance sexually, or a mixed match. So if I notice that dynamic in my relationship, I notice I'm the pursuer, my partner's the distancer, I notice I'm the angry one, my partner's the shutting down one. What's the approach to remedying that dynamic? Okay. What, what you need to do is you need to work on the pursuer, not the distancer. Like even in therapy, if somebody's distancing, I'll be polite to them and I'll, you know, make make contact, but I'm going to work on the pursuer because the pursuer is open for it. The other one's not. I'm, I'm not going to go pursuing them just like their partner is. <laughs> that wouldn't be too therapeutic. But <laughs> <laughs> it's two on one. <laughs> right? I mean, some therapists do it, but that's why people don't go back. It's like, I'm not going to pay for what I get home. So you always go you know, with the pursuer and just trying to, what's, and behind the pursuit invariably is more vulnerable feelings, sadness, loneliness, behind the anger, it's always there too. You know what I mean? So if you can get past the intensity to the hurt and vulnerability inside, that's where intimacy happens. Then the other partner, you'll see, they go into it. And then the other partner who's pulling away will move closer and listen. And you can see them kind of connect. They val- resonate with what's going on with the other person, unless they have so much of their own stuff and they're so shut down that they pull back even further. Then you need to work with them alone first, if you know what I mean. That's that's a bit bigger issue and they have more more problems. Or if they're drinking or do something like that, it's the same thing. I don't mean to drink every now and again. I just mean if that's the solution to avoid. You can distance to work. You can distance to TV. You can distance to sex. You can distance to making money. You can distance to eating. You can distance to other people. Um, and you can pursue all of the above. So people usually are in a pursuer distance. They're distancing from one thing and pursuing something else. Distancing from one person and pursuing another person, if you know what I'm saying. It's like a reciprocity kind of thing. I think that's such a key insight that behind the pursuer, behind the attacking or even criticism that you might experience in a relationship, there is a more vulnerable feeling, probably some sadness, maybe some fear and security hiding behind it. Always. Always. Yeah, always. Even the, the most, you know what I mean, sociopathic person in the world, if you got far, it's hard to do. Far enough back, that's there. It's just they have a lot of baggage that they've used to avoid it. So it's always there. It's just much harder to get back to it. So you mentioned the baggage. You mentioned a lot of the conditioning that we received from parents. And I feel like that's a good segue into secret number three, which is to view your conditioning with love. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, we're all born into some kind of family system, right? And if we're not, if we're in an orphan orphanage, then, then we have this shadow of a family system that we're kind of off from, you know what I mean? That we don't have any data. And then the orphanage becomes our family system, if you know what I mean. But that other vague one, which we can, it's like a, a blank coloring 
book that we can fill in with ever, whatever colors we fill in, but that doesn't mean that those were the accurate colors of the, the original, if you know what I'm trying to say. So, um, so the conditioning, so we're all conditioned. Say you grow up in a family and um, your parents grew up in a family and their parents grew up in a family and you can look. It's really, really important to look at your family system and to see what's going on and how do they relate to each other? How did mom and dad relate? How did they, how does the family relate? Because whatever they do or don't do is going to come into your relationship. You know, when you, when you date someone, uh, I mean, seriously, it's important to connect with the family just to, and watch, observe, see what happens, see how people relate to each other, see what people do. Because your partner, unless they've had years and years and years of therapy, is going to do the same thing. You know, and we're all, it's the school you go, where is the school you go to be a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, a plumber, an electrician, you go to some kind of school. Well, the school you learn to be a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a partner is home and the TV and the movies, you know, but home is the big one. And you may say, I don't want to be like them. So I'm the complete opposite. The opposite is always the same. It's the flip side. So you may say, I don't want to be like them, but then I need to work on it and see what they did and didn't do. And, you know, but you have to work on it. It's not automatic. And we're all conditioned. It's just an occupational hazard of being human by culture, by TV, by everything, by nationality. I mean, everything, cultures, religion, education, it's all, you know, an acculturation, if you will, a conditioning, right? I mean, we condition what's acceptable, what's good, what's valued. And all of those groups have different conditioning, different values. So the important thing is to see if this is really what you believe, it's real value, or is it something you just, it's a knee-jerk reaction. So out of curiosity, what kind of paradigm are you almost imagining in working with our conditioning? For example, is our goal to have unconditional <laughs> love? Are we reconditioning ourselves? Well, I guess there... I mean, we're all human. I mean, we, we kind of get a grip. There's nobody who's totally going to be able to give you unconditional, no, a human. I don't know very many humans who can give you total unconditional love. Do you know what I mean? I, I, it's a good trick if you can do it, but... You do the best you can. Do you know what I mean? To, you know, and you can't expect it from another person. I mean, you can expect whatever you want, but it's not realistic. You know, I can expect you to jump off the Empire State Building. It doesn't mean you can do it. You know, and some expectations are realistic and some are totally unrealistic. If I was really from a very abusive background and had a lot of trauma and everything, without getting outside help, I don't think it's fair to accept, be, expect what you expect from me, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. what I'm saying? from a person. It's just, we're just limited human beings doing the best we can. So as we're winding down, I want to do two things. One, I don't want to leave our listeners hanging. So we've mentioned three of the secrets. Number four is emerge free to love. Number five is route and navigate in stormy seas. And if you want to learn more about that, definitely check out two by two on the arc. It will be in the show notes too. Because as we're winding down, I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more about your own spiritual practice and spiritual views on love. Obviously, the title for your book is a biblical reference. We're talking about not just any particular arc. (laughs) But also in your book, you talk about mindfulness, Vipassana meditations. And what does a more spiritual love look like to you? Well, in my belief, we're all physical, mental, emotional, sensate, spiritual beings. I mean, I think there's a whole reality 
inside a space that, well, we, we just don't know what it is, but you can sense it. And some people, I mean, with meditation, what you're trying to do is to clear away the, the thoughts, the emotions, the sensations, to allow just beingness or presence or isness or whatever word you want. So to me, if I'm upset or my place to go would be to find that peaceful space, that space inside that's free of stuff, no thing. And that's just beingness. And you have that space and I have that space. It's inside us, the whole space all around us. So in other words, I have electrons and protons that are formed that make me. When I die, they'll ultimately disintegrate and just be part of the universe. You know what I mean? What remains? My consciousness, that spirituality, whatever word you want to use, different cultures call it different words, but that beingness, this disintegrates, this disintegrates, reforms into different forms. But the, what makes me who I am is not, well, it's partly physical, but there's a, my consciousness is not, if you know what I'm trying to say. And so it's that oneness, beingness, no thing, presence, it's just peace. And so if you and I are really angry with each other, I can get into that and go into a whole big Megillah about it, or I can sort of do that and then try to get beyond that or underneath that to just me being, being at one with, present. I love all the things you're saying. And what is that connection between the beingness, presence, isness, no thingness, and this other thing <laughs> we call love? That's a really good question. And I, I guess on a on a, an abstract level, what what this what's, what some people call love, it's like love is quite a word. You know, there there are many versions of love. So like defining love, what I'm talking about, you can't define because as soon as you define it, you lose it. You're pulling it into a form. I'm talking about something that's formless at, at, at its essence. And so to go to that space allows you to to the hurt, the stuff, and all the things that humanity and humans do is going on, but you can know that that space is, it's happening within that space. And that space is home. Beautiful. I do love appreciating the ineffability of both the human experience, but also the loving experience. And it very much ties into what you were saying earlier about how attached we are to conceptual understanding. But if we really want to tap into greater depths of our being, we have to go beyond concepts and words. And the greatest of these is love. And that's the connection that we're all one and we're all connected. And if you can just see that oneness when you're, when somebody is like that, if you can stay present to your own space and allow them space, you can sometimes even connect with that space in them. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard. So you can't. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mary Jifra for coming on to the show. And I do have to finish by asking you the question I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? That they were loved at the deepest of level, even if they don't know it and never felt it. That at their core, they are love. You are loved at the deepest level, even if you don't know it. <laughs> There's a part of us that might know it deep down. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Dr. Mary Jiffer. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. You have so much wisdom behind the work that you do in the world. You're or clients are lucky to have you, your students are lucky to have you, and I appreciate you for coming on. And for our listeners that want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Uh, it's They can call me at 914-274-1660, or they can email me at maryjjifra, G-I-U-F-F-R-A, at gmail.com, or they can go on my websites. I have three websites. One is www.drmarygifra.com. The other one is The Two Career Family. That's my next book that I'm writing. Okay. And, but, but I have a website. And the third one is uh, Two by Two on the Ark, Five Secrets of a Great Relationship, www, before both, www, The Two Career Family, and www, two, two times two on the ark, colon, Five Secrets of a Great Relationship. So there are three accesses on the website, an email or a phone. Well, I look forward to you coming back on the show when Two Career Family comes out, because that's also a really interesting topic, especially nowadays, as more and more uh, families have both parents working. So, Two Career Families, how to create space and save time to work, love, and play. Wow, I love it. Wonderful. I look forward to it. And in the meantime, we have Two by Two to learn from. And I really enjoyed talking with you. You're so present. I love it. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, it's easy <laughs> to be present to all the wisdom you have to share. So thank you so much for coming on. I want to value your time. So I wish you well. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.